the first state, the Diamond State, home of President Joe Biden, the world's corporate capital. Delaware is known for a lot of things, but its identity can't be painted with a broad brush. There are three counties, each with its own unique character, and within each, towns, neighborhoods, and individuals with their own ideas about what it means to be a Delawarean. This season, the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A More Perfect Union, explores the concept of identity, what draws us together as a state, what keeps us apart, and how we can ensure all perspectives are heard. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. We thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its support as part of its A More Perfect Union initiative, designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation, while supporting projects that help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. A More Perfect Union is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A More Perfect Union podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. This third episode in our examination of community looks at health and the environment and how they can affect and shape communities across the first state especially underserved and vulnerable communities. To discuss this intersection of health and environment in Delaware, we are joined by nurse practitioner Imani Dorival, founder of Ifatha Medical Care Services, a Haitian medical clinic in Seaford, and primary care physician Dr. David Donahue, a fellow of both the American College of Physicians and American College of Lifestyle Medicine, as well as one of the owners of Progressive Health of Delaware. Thanks to both of you for being here with us today on the A More Perfect Union podcast. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. So there are environmental issues up and down the state that, that present real potential impacts to health. Um, they range from emissions from the Crota plant and other industry around the Route 9 corridor to PFAS contamination up and down the state, runoff from chicken farms in Sussex County to lead paint exposure in low-income housing and, and aging water infrastructure. And I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Donahue. How concerned are you overall about these, these various issues and their impact on underserved and vulnerable communities here in Delaware? Well, Tom, I think it's huge. Uh, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about this because it's a really important topic and, and we don't we really don't address it enough, in my opinion. Um, you know, the statistics are a little bit scary. I mean, evidence is that we we lose about two over two years of our life expectancy because of um, because of pollution more broadly. Um, and there are huge opportunities to improve you know, many aspects of the way we interoperate with our environment. Um, we're talking today on Earth Day, and uh, so it, it's definitely front of mind today that, that you know, we, we, are, we are inhabitants of this planet, and uh, we often think of ourselves as immune from, from uh, or sort of separate from the planet, but we're really, we're really part of the planet, and, and the way we live our lives plays a huge role in so many things that we're, we're accustomed to as business as usual, everyday events, get in the car, drive down the interstate, go to work. Um, you are, there's a footprint and, and the way we are doing things needs to change. Uh, we've made progress in recent decades with certain elements of air pollution and other areas, but we have a lot more uh, improvements that we need. I mean, 
we're appreciating the devastating effects of, of PM 2.5 air pollution. Um, and when we drive that, that gas combustion car or that diesel vehicle, we're creating a lot of deadly pollution we can measure now. We have, we're a lot smarter now. We have a lot of data we can measure the impact in terms of lives lost, in terms of cancer cases or heart disease cases, childhood asthma, the list goes on. So we've got, we've got a lot of work to do. Imani, how about you? I mean, how, how concerned are you about these, these very various environmental issues and, and how they affect health, particularly, again, in, in underserved and vulnerable communities throughout the state? Yes, thank you again for giving me this opportunity to be part of this conversation. Um, uh, I moved uh, to Delaware four years ago, and the first thing that struck me um, was the smell of the uh, when you're driving by a poultry plant, and I always puzzled what the long-term impact or effect of being exposed uh, to that uh, pollution. And uh, referring back to the vulnerable uh, population, I serve a community. Um, there are a lot of um, migrant workers, undocumented workers that pretty much work in majority uh, in the poultry plant industry. And there are, there are many factors actually that affect them uh, as far as the work environment. Uh, they work in very low cold uh, temperature and, and there are certain gear that they have to wear uh, to do their job. And uh, I, I could remember uh, 18 year old young men, black uh, African-American young men um, who came with um, complaining of uh, uh, numbness and tingling in his lower extremities uh, because of the, the, the boots he had to wear. And um, for some reason, he, he started to lose sensation on his lower extremity. And I'm like, you're 18. <laughs> why, why, why are you what are you doing working in that type of environment? You should be in school. And again, he has to contribute to, to rent. He has to help his mom. So because of the socioeconomic status of that family, he had to contribute. So he had to expose himself to, to very unpleasant environment to, to meet to make ends meet um, and dealing again with uh, serving the Haitian community um, with language barriers. Uh, they will have multiple complaints um, where uh, things fall on them um, or the repetitive, repetitiveness of you know, using certain certain part of their body, uh, either cutting the, the chicken or, or pulling something constantly uh, that after so many months or years, they 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 suffer from from uh, muscular uh, skeletal uh, defect or, or discomfort or, or different diseases because of what they do. And they are doing um, a wonderful work. I mean, we need chicken, a lot of <laughs> a major percentage of us uh, 
eat chicken, uh, but at the same time, the work condition is 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 threatened and it's it's a hazard for so many. I'm curious to to both of you. Um, you know, Dr. Donahue, you talked about kind of emissions. Imani, you were talking about the poultry industry. You know, I mentioned a, a kind of a laundry list of, of environmental uh, th- you know, things in the environment that that have this potential to impact health. And I guess you know, I'm curious. Is, is that part of the problem in addressing these things in communities? It's, at some point, you know, the list of things that, that have these potential impacts is very long and very varied, that it can be sometimes overwhelming for people to kind of wrap their head around and figure out, okay, well, how do I, how do I attack these issues? Absolutely. There's, there's so many things that need to change um, from top to bottom in our economy. Um, so folks, uh, folks who uh, are living with uh, in a more socioeconomically disadvantaged uh, environment uh, obviously don't have the resources to go and change uh, which car they're driving or um, where they're getting their food from or things of that nature. So they're the ones at the most risk and they're the ones who are going to suffer the most from from all the different forms of pollution. And, and I think it's incumbent on people with the money, including the governments, to mm-hmm. really steer us in, in a healthier direction. And, and it can't be a, oh, by the way, health and the environment is important. It, it needs to become you know, central focus of everything we do. Imani? Yes, it is so true. Um, you mentioned the type of food we eat. Uh, even myself, for example, if you buy cucumbers, I, I notice there's this um, coating. Uh, even if you use, you know, soap to wash it, but not everyone know that they have to do that. The pesticide they use um, to uh, to preserve the preservative. Um, all these things have a long-term effect in our health, in our body. Um, again, it there's a sentiment of powerlessness, there's not much we can do. I mean, we need the food, uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, the quality, the quality of what we receive in uh, certain um, stores, you don't find in Delaware, uh, um, because again, socioeconomic status, they cannot afford whole food to go and buy organic uh, uh, food. So these things, pretty much the people who are affected the most, they don't have a voice. They don't have the ability to change, to bring change, uh, uh, especially change um, uh, things that affect the community in general, pollution, uh, the quality of things that they eat, what they exposed to on the type of job that they do. Sure. Um, so it's it's pretty much a, a sentiment of myself when I face to it, um, come across to it. Um, there's not much I can do or uh, even refer them for some assistance. It's very limited. Uh, Dr. Donahue, you mentioned the idea of, of you know, companies and, and the government needing to, to make it a primary focus. And 
the state has, in some areas, started to to do just that. I mean, certainly, um, the state is. In, when we talk about, like, for example, water quality, they've created finally a clean water trust fund that, with the federal infrastructure funding, you know, gives some opportunities for cleaning up water, um, along with kind of in parallel the the effort to create stronger PFAS contamination limits for the state. Um, but I, I guess the question, you know, I, I guess the question I have is we see some progress. We also see it in, in an area you mentioned um, vehicles. I mean, the state has has made efforts and has a goal of uh, changing over its DART fleet to electric buses. I think it's you know, they're trying to get to 50 percent in, in the coming decade. Um, I guess the question I have for both of you is, do, do you feel the government is doing enough at this juncture? And if not, where where do, where would you like them to focus their efforts going forward? Uh, well, I personally don't think we're doing enough, but uh, I'm I'm delighted at these efforts. I think there's they can be a step in the right direction. But we have to be careful to um, sort of pat ourselves on the back mm-hmm. and say, "Oh, well, we solved that problem." Mm-hmm. We haven't solved that problem today. <laughs> in, in throughout the state of Delaware and throughout the country, uh, kids are getting on the school buses that are uh, diesel school buses and uh, emitting very very dirty uh, um, exhaust that, that they're breathing. Like you know, even though it's out the tailpipe. Uh, kids riding a diesel bu- uh, uh, bus are, are inhaling a lot more particulates and deadly uh, stuff, and they, ha- and, they, and they suffer the consequences. They have higher rates of asthma. Uh, and then there's longer, longer-term consequences, too. Um, uh, in my opinion, we need to fundamentally uh, kind of revisit our whole relationship with energy, with transportation. Uh, in my opinion, we need a carbon tax of some kind so that the emitters pay for it. So... Sure, there's a, a, it's going to hit the economy in some ways, but it's going to boost the economy in other ways, and it's going to incentivize everybody to really, uh, you know, look at their footprint and make an effort, and and not just dump their their refuse, their pollution into the air or into the water for free. Um, and and that's just the start. I mean, there's there's a whole whole lot of other things. I mean, I, I come from the field of lifestyle medicine, and and we really believe in the intersection between um, health and and the environment. And, and it turns out there's such a win-win when you uh, help somebody's uh, behaviors become healthier with regard to nutrition, with regard to exercise uh, and sleep, and, and as well, benefiting the environment in the same process. And Amani, I mean, you, you've taken kind of more of a grassroots approach to trying to help get at some of these issues. I, I'm curious, you know, how you, how you feel that fits into this picture uh, and how you feel perhaps maybe the work that you and other organizations do you know helps put some uh, some pressure on whether it be companies, the government to 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 join in and do more. Well, as I said before, i i I don't feel I have the authority and the ability to to approach the government per se uh, to bring change. The only thing i I relied on um, is education, um, make better choices for yourself. What I noticed recently, um, I don't know if it's because the disinfectant, you know, everywhere, public places, because of COVID, we're using a lot of um, Mm -hmm. disinfectant. Um, Myself, I am asthmatic and um, when we, after they spray, I will have a trigger. Again, this is 
necessary. We have to disinfect, but at the same time, it creates other issues. But involving the government um, and talking to the representative who can bring law or uh, bring changes, I feel like we don't have, I don't have a strong voice. I don't have a strong voice to even choose the proper medication for my patients. The insurance industry control that. I prescribe something, they tell me not, no, that they're not going to cover that. So again, all these things, I feel like we don't have a strong, strong voice um, in making a decision um, that could bring changes politically or in the government. It's interesting you bring that up, Armani, because one of the things I wanted to talk about is just recently there was a, another public meeting on the Crota plants near Newcastle um, that's had a lot of issues, uh, you know, and really impacts the surrounding neighborhoods there. And, you know, I was, I was at that Zoom public meeting and, and you could see, you know, that there was the usual list of, of advocates participating. And that's obviously very important to have people who are, are advocating for these communities. Um, but it wasn't a huge audience in that Zoom setting. And it made me think, how many of the people who are really affected, the actual people in these neighborhoods, are getting this information, are involved in, in the process. And I guess the, you know, the biggest question is, you know, you know, how, how do we get at that issue, that getting the information that people need in these communities to them, um, and also you know, how, do, how can they be better engaged uh, in learning about, as you were saying, about it, just learning about the issues that are around them and ways that perhaps they can personally take some uh, action to help themselves. And, and Dr. Donahue, on the larger scale, you know, make change and affect change um, to what's happening in their surrounding area. Yeah, I mean, my gosh, uh, education is, is critical. I mean, we, as a primary care physician, I've often remarked that I feel like a first grade educator because I'm teaching people stuff they should have learned in grade school um, as far as nutrition, as far as air quality, as far as sustainability. Uh, this stuff's really important and it's all around us. And you make a great point, Thomas, that, um, you know, pe people aren't necessarily focused on, on these key things that are happening all around them. But, but an example of something you would teach people is the highways are deadly. And the closer you live to a highway, the higher your risk of asthma, the higher your risk of lung cancer, um, the higher yes. risk of heart disease. Uh, it's probably because of the, those fine particulates, which are so deadly, those P, PM 2.5, the, the very small um, soot particles that come out of the tailpipes of uh, diesel trucks and come out of every, every car and come out of power plants. But we don't know, nobody's being educated. The people live right near a coal-fired power plant. And this is the low rent district. This is places where the most uh, economically disadvantaged people live. But they, they, how much of that have they learned about, you know, the dangers of coal ash and, and just being pro, uh, living in proximity to these these toxic environments, the, the dangers of lead, what's going on with the water quality? You know, right. So in my opinion, there should be a K through 12 class on sustainability and on health. Uh, I don't see why not. Like, it's not like it's not important. It's totally important. And it's not like it's a dead end as far as jobs. I would say education system's purpose is to get ready people ready for their careers. Well, healthcare is like 20% of our economy. So there's jobs in it too. We, we need to totally revamp our education system and have a K-12 yeah. every year, full year course on environment and sustainability and health and nutrition, in my opinion. 
Amanda, do you want to you want to add I on am, to that? I am I am in total agreement with Dr. Benohu uh, because education uh, is the key to change that could bring change, and and if we start at the school system early, uh, um, I think they will learn the proper way, not only you know how to live, uh, how to make good choices, uh, uh, healthy choices. I think that will be excellent uh, you have a that's an that is an excellent idea doctor uh Dana who to to bring change to the school system because at the end of the day because another thing i come across for example diabetic patient hypertensive patient we're talking about low sodium uh, i'm telling them eat fresh eat fresh um don't buy cane uh goods they say well that's what we can afford <laughs> so what where do I go from there? So they, these are practical things that they are face, they facing, and they that's what they can afford. That's the key thing. I can also, I say okay, go to the farmers market, buy fresh vegetables. They expensive. The can I can go to the the dollar store mm -hmm. and get you know beans in a can or vegetable in cans, but they are heavy uh, in sodium. Right. So these are choices. You know even what they eat uh, uh, they cannot even bring uh, real changes uh, health make healthy choices for their lives and I, and I imagine dr. Donahue that 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 education piece is ultimately kind of the the on-ramp to kind of the other issue I was getting at which is actually having people engaged right if, if perhaps people are better educated perhaps then they are more inclined to go to a public meeting or learn about an issue in their in their neighborhood and engage uh, their lawmakers as, as Manu was saying that you know sometimes they feel powerless maybe if they feel more educated and more informed they feel more ready to to engage the system and make change and, and advocate for themselves oh absolutely knowledge is power right if, if you're oblivious to what's going on around you then there you have zero power to organize and and uh, and take action. So absolutely, I, I think it's it's step one. But you're right. We need we need other um, you know communities in place to facilitate those those public meetings and to really get people aware of what's going on. And it's hard when people are busy with their careers. So you know I I, I you know I agree with Imani that um, if people had learned how to cook up beans and uh, in, in, in their education, well, why not teach people how to boil up lentils in 20 minutes and then you add some seasoning and you got yourself a very nutritious and very low cost meal. Uh, and you know, how to prepare vegetables and so forth. You know, these are skills that we've lost. Um, so I think education is, is key to the, to the power, to giving us the power to live healthy lives and to change the, our environment. I do want to follow up, Imani, uh, on, on an issue that I think is also kind of really persistent, and that is access to care for underserved communities. And I'm curious what you think the the role of that is in in people in underserved and vulnerable communities to to understand and navigate all these issues that we're talking about. Um, just being having the access to talk to someone uh, who can who can educate them and help them at the at the most basic level. How important is is getting at that issue to help get at these other issues? Oh, you you hate it. <laughs> this is actually the reason I am here. I I left California. Um, I moved to the area. I was looking actually for 
loan repayment. <laughs> so I ended up coming, accepted a position as a bilingual provider, serving the Haitian communities uh, in Federalsburg, Maryland. Um, the disparity was so big. And also I realized I have very little, um, my voice was so small and, and I couldn't, for example, make a decision to, to send, see someone without charging them because they didn't have the ability to pay. So that was the, the catalyst that pushed me to open my own practice. Really our focus is to bridge the gap of healthcare disparities in the uh, uh, underserved communities in Sussex County. And we opened our second practice in Salisbury, Maryland, the same thing. Um, underserved communities, uh, uh, high rate of hypertension, diabetes, asthma. Uh, and um, so this is something I face daily, um, but I am grateful. I had the opportunity to open the practice and it was open during COVID. We survived COVID and um, I had to make sacrifices using my own money to do so. I, I as a new practice, uh, I, I could not even pay myself. I sacrificed working without pay for two years, not to give up because the, it was too great to walk away. The best thing would have been, okay, um, I don't have to live in Delaware. I can't go to to DC, I can go to Boston, I can go somewhere else and work for a big organization. I used to work for Kaiser Permanente in California, but because my commitment for humanity, I, I couldn't walk away. And the, the need is still great. And I'm still facing challenges to meet the needs because I work as a sole provider and now we're having more patients and need to hire more uh, <clears throat> Uh, practitioners, uh, providers, but we are limiting, we are limited in funding. So this is something that I face on a daily basis and I'm very passionate about it. And I'm trying to find ways to continue doing what we do and also to serve more people. Dr. Donahue, do, do healthcare providers need to, to be more active in addressing these issues of environmental justice and, and kind of helping people see the connection that, that, that you both are talking to us about today? Oh, absolutely, we, big time. I mean, the good, good news is that, that there's a growing movement. Um, I'm a member of the Medical Society of Delaware and uh, we have a environmental um, health subcommittee. Um, there's a number of organizations of physicians who are organizing um, around this important issue who, who recognize that you know, the grave situation, it's grave crossroads we find ourselves at with respect to climate change, but more broadly uh, with respect to um, pollution. Um, mm -hmm. So, but that said, um, there's not a profit motive for health systems to worry at all about their environmental footprint, about how much toxins they're putting out. If, if they're worrying about that, it, it's it's uh, on their own dime. It's it's you know, it, there's there's no incentives built into the system. There's no cost that anybody incurs by you know, throwing away every, making every little piece of equipment that we use in healthcare a disposable piece of plastic, which we do, and we're very very wasteful. 
Um, and, and so I, I think that there's a whole, you know, again, there's just a whole lot more that we need to do. And, and I, I fear that the efforts that we're doing now are, are going to be viewed in 10, 20, 30 years, 50 years as too little, too late at a time when we really should have known better and we weren't listening to the, uh, the clarion calls uh, uh, for big changes that, that are needed. I want to ask you both, um, as we start to wind down, are you what does kind of environmental justice, uh, you know, particularly for communities of color, historically underserved communities look like for you? Um, I guess it's kind of a, an opportunity for each of you maybe to talk about something that we haven't talked about so far that you feel um, we, we need to kind of illuminate as we talk about the idea of, of environmental justice and how that impacts health uh, in, in, this, in the state and, and the, the communities of the state. Um, yeah, I, th I think um, number one, having a basic access to basic health care, just the basic um, preventive care. Uh, I I just joined um, uh, the Lauer West Cancer Correlation. Um, they doing they have a new program uh, where they can. Uh, um, we can do preventive screening uh, for, for example, mammogram um, for prostate, uh, uh, colorectal, or uh, without them paying. Uh, it's a it's 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 funded uh, through the state. Um, it's a uh, just to help, especially those underserved. Uh, uh, workers, uh, they can get a mammogram without, you know, they have to worry about paying for it. So, so we're collaborating in that sense. Just having basic access to care is is so important. And also, as far as pollution, um, uh, create uh, guidelines uh, or laws that could help everyone. For example. In California, I lived in California. It's required that you have to have a smoke check before you renew your license uh, uh, on each vehicle. So, if they could do something just like that, um, make sure the vehicles that that is not in good condition should not be running. Uh, so, things that could, when as an equality, we all have the same benefits end of environment um if i don't have the choice to live in a neighborhood uh, where i could have good good uh vegetables or have access to to good uh, quality of food but bringing store have some type of way um that they can have some type of funding bring stores where people can have access to good quality uh, food um it's pretty basic, but unfortunately, um, it's it's not. There's no uh, uh, equality in that sense. Dr. Donahue, how about yourself? Well, there, there's uh, there's so much opportunity, and uh, I love Amani's um, emphasis on access, and 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 I completely agree that our our more broadly our healthcare system needs uh, needs an overhaul. I mean, we we have a corporate healthcare system, and and, and your ability to access healthcare is really determined by your, you know, your income. Um, unfortunately, it's not the case in other countries. It doesn't have to be that way. 
Um, as far as, you know, the environment and, you know, life, the, sort of the lifestyle medicine approach to, to this is it's, it's all about prevention. You know, prevention is so much more cost effective. And even when you look at no brainer situations like um, heart attacks, you know, heart attacks are almost completely preventable. I mean, it's not like it's normal for the human body to have a heart attack. A heart attack happened for a reason. And usually it's a combination of unhealthy diet, unhealthy lifestyle, and PM 2.5 air pollution is, 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 this is new information, but we believe it accounts for about 25% of heart attacks. I mean, very, very big, important stuff. So teaching um, and, and really emphasizing the role that prevention can have. And, and you know, for, for me as a primary, and I share Imani's struggles, like in primary care, we don't have resources. Like we're, we're not paid to prevent very much. We're paid to look busy. We live in a fee-for-service healthcare system. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so I can't, if I wanted to set up an educational program in the city of Wilmington and teach people about air pollution, how to prevent asthma attacks, I wouldn't get a dime for that activity. Uh, unless I, I don't know how I would get paid for that. But if, if, <laughs> if I wait till somebody has that heart attack or that asthma attack and hospitalize them, I, I, I can earn tens of thousands of dollars. So we spend the money in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have this uh, overemphasis on a lack of regulation. So these kids who are having asthma attacks or these adults who are having heart attacks living in the inner city of Wilmington, highways surrounding them in, in, every, in every direction, um, there's, there's not enough emphasis on looking at that, at that environment that they live in that zip code. We, you know, the, the, you know, the, as they say, your zip code is a stronger determinant of your life expectancy than your genetic yeah. code. Right. And this is literally <laughs> true. Your, your zip code is more important than your genetic code as far as, as far as what we can measure in the science. So, uh, we've got to make up for those discrepancies, those social determinants of health. Uh, yes. and, and it, it starts with, uh, you know, emphasis on prevention. Uh, measuring those key details, education, um, be, willingness to regulate these harmful behaviors that we do in society so that society will realign itself to a healthier uh, direction. So in very broad strokes, that, that would be the direction uh, I would recommend we go in. Imani Dorival, nurse practitioner and founder of Ifata Medical Care Services, and Dr. David Donahue, one of the owners of Progressive Health of Delaware, Thank you both for joining us on the A More Perfect Union podcast. We appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A More Perfect Union podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. We thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its support as part of its A More Perfect Union initiative, designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation, while supporting projects that help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. A More Perfect Union is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR news.